Well, we praise God for Chris and, uh, and how ordinary people sharing the extraordinary gospel of Jesus Christ uh, can change someone's eternity in relationship with him. Uh, if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Titus chapter 2. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name's Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you as uh, we worship together. We're going to be going through the book of Titus. We've been in a series uh, through the book of Titus that we've entitled The Trellis, uh, because in the same way that healthy Christians grow, um, God has designed the church to act almost as a trellis that fosters the growth of each Christian and as the church community together. And so uh, we're looking at the book of Titus to hear from God's Word, and we will specifically be in Titus chapter 2, finishing up a little bit of what we looked at last week, and then uh, finishing out the chapter as a whole before we wrap up today. Uh, now, I'll give you a little bit of context because you might not be familiar with the book of Titus, or maybe you need a little bit of a refresher. This letter is written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, very late in his ministry. He's writing this letter to Titus. Now, Paul and Titus went to this island in the Mediterranean Sea called Crete, and they shared the gospel. And as people heard this powerful good news of Jesus, uh, Jesus, the Son of God, taking on flesh to die for sinners, to save sinners, resurrected and reigning in heaven, to draw sinners to himself, to offer eternal life, and one day to return. As people heard that good news, their lives were forever changed. Well, then Paul continued on his missionary journey, but he left Titus in the island of Crete. Uh, and Titus had the task of putting all of these new communities of believers into order. These local churches popped up all throughout the island, and so it was Titus's responsibility to preach the word, uh, to establish godly leaders to teach people how to live in light of this good news message. Uh, that it's not just about making a decision in a moment, but becoming a disciple of Christ, a follower of Jesus throughout your entire life. And what we will find is that the exact same advice and instruction that Paul gave to Titus is just as applicable for us in 2023. Now, one of the unique aspects of uh, what Paul teaches Titus is the way that the church body is to train one another, to build one another up through word, through deed, through encouragement, and that's called discipleship. Whenever God uses this community of faith to encourage one another toward Christ-likeness, that is discipleship. And so last week, we just kind of scratched the surface of a couple observations in Titus 2, 1 through 10 about discipleship. And we're going to look again at Titus 2, 1 through 10 and just kind of finish those up and then we'll, we'll finish out the rest of the chapter. So if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find verse 1 of chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's okay. It will be on the screen behind me. And we also have several on the table in the back that we would love to gift you before you leave this afternoon. God's word says this, but as for you, he's talking to Titus here, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may not be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, we looked at several observations about discipleship last week that come from this passage. I just want to highlight those real quick. Uh, if, if you want the, the full sermon, you can watch it on um, our website or, or YouTube or get the notes and the email, uh, but I just want to briefly bring everyone up to speed. First, we see in this passage that discipleship consists of both information and application, right? So it's a matter of what do I need to know 
about who God is and what to do. It's also a matter of what do I need to do? How do I put these things into practice? Second, discipleship thrives in diversity. We've seen here commands for older women and younger women, for older men and younger men. This is for both Jew and Gentile. Here he addresses bond servants at the end, people of every status in every part of this community, that they would be able to teach one another about the Lord, no one being superior or inferior to the other. Third, discipleship isn't always linear. It's not just discipleship 101, 102, 103, and that's kind of how you learn how to pray and follow Jesus, no. Uh, you come alongside someone and you watch the way that they suffer or serve their spouse and you're grown in that context. Fourth, discipleship takes place in relationships. It's not just information that is downloaded into you, like whenever you go to bed at night knowing that at some point before you wake up, your iPhone will be updated. And then it, you open it up and now everything looks different on there. That is not how the Christian life works. It's not just an instant download. No, discipleship takes place in relationships. And fifth, discipleship declares the good news to the watching world. He says, live in such a way that those who see your life won't be able to revile the word of God. No, they'll revere it because they, they see what might be countercultural or confusing, and yet it displays the goodness of God in the way that he has designed his commands to lead to your flourishing. And discipleship declares the good news to the watching world. Now that brings us to verse six in our passage. Last week, we looked at the qualifications for applying the gospel as an older man, as an older woman, and as a young woman. And here in verse six, we hear Paul's instruction to the younger men. Now up to this point, we've had long lists, right? There's been a list and several traits. You get to verse six and it says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now you gotta wonder, all right, Paul, like why are you only giving one command to the young men that are in this congregation? Be self-controlled. It's almost like he's, he's thinking, you know what? I don't wanna give them too much to remember. This one command will keep them busy long enough. Guys, just be self-controlled. And while that, that kind of makes us laugh, consider how all-encompassing this particular command is, is it not? I mean, perhaps no struggle is greater for a young man than self-control. It's often for young men to be, to be in this struggle with time management or an intrinsic motivation to, to get up and to get things done, to set an alarm and to you know, hit the, the ground with your feet running, to make your life matter. It's often a, a matter of self-control that is a struggle when it comes to sexual restraint or managing finances in a godly way or making decisions with the long-term impact of those decisions in mind. Navigating these aspects of growing into adulthood requires a spirit-empowered self-control that only God can give. And so Paul here, speaking to Titus about how to instruct the young men is saying, tell them to be self controlled as this fruit of the Spirit is born out in their life. And as I give this exhortation, I also want you to know, if you're a young man in this congregation, that I am very proud of you. I, I mean, I, I think that often, and at the risk of making things weird, I want you to know that I, I consider many of you to be like sons to me. You have sat in my office and we've talked about difficult things and we've worked through issues or you've told me what you're learning in God's word. And, and I'm encouraged by you. Yes, there are areas that you can grow, but overall, I would say that the young men of the Oaks display godly character in the midst of a culture that seems to give out trophies made out of fool's gold for, for prolonging adolescent behavior. I want you to know that you're living in a way that is applying this godly self-control. While many are, are chasing money, you're serving the church. While many seem to 
have, have spent their lives in these years living recklessly before settling down. You have made it your aim to pursue Christ and uproot sin. And I think it's good for you to know that I am proud of you in Christ's work in you because perhaps you're sitting here and you have not heard those words from your own father. So it's good for you to know that God is at work in your life. It's good for you to know that you have a Father in heaven who is proud of you too. Now, at the risk of uh, getting too sentimental, know that you can still be a knucklehead at times, and there are still plenty of areas that you and I both need to grow. But by the power of the resurrected Christ that lives in you through the indwelling Holy Spirit, you can be self-controlled. So make it your aim to be self-controlled with your money, with your sexuality, with your time, with your view of success and your desire for status because it belongs to God. And he has entrusted your life to you to live for his glory. And so that's what Paul instructs these young men in in verse 6 to do, to be self-controlled. In verses 7 through 8, we see that Paul then turns his attention to Titus. He says, show yourself, talking to Titus, in all respects, to be a model of good works and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be contemned so that an opportunity may be put to shame, so that an an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. We know that the false teachers would have done anything that they could to undermine the credibility of Titus. Right? They were trying to impose all sorts of dietary restrictions and laws that were unnecessary, saying, if you really want to be right with God, do these things. And yet the good news of the gospel is that you are saved by grace alone, and your acceptance before the Lord is based upon what Christ did alone, not the works of your own hands, but the works of his. And so here, Paul is encouraging Titus to live in a way that will make the gospel shine before men. The, the, the way that he lives his life would put his opponents to shame. He says in verse 7, to be a model of good works. That word that we see there for model is tupos. It's where we get our word type. Now, if you've ever seen a classic typewriter, then you know that on that typewriter, there is a metal stamp that corresponds to every character of the alphabet on that typewriter. And as that key is struck on the typewriter, what takes place is the metal of that character is then impressed on the paper with the exact dimensions of that letter. And it is repeated. And every time it is struck, that letter is once again impressed upon that paper. Here it's as if Titus is being commanded to live in such a way that his character could be a type for other Christians to follow, that his character owes a way to silence the opponents of the gospel. And the same is true of you, that God is calling you to model good works for others, that your life would be wet with the ink of Christ's blood, that your life would compose a letter that models this gospel love and truth to those around you. And this leads us to our sixth observation about discipleship, that discipleship presupposes spirit-empowered progress. And perhaps this is the most comforting observation about discipleship for you and I, that discipleship presupposes spirit-empowered progress. This means that you are not required or expected to be perfect. Even Titus needed to grow. Perhaps you feel like me whenever you get to the end of this passage, reading these 10 verses, and you feel the weight of your shortcomings as you walk through these traits of being sound and consistent in your faith and genuinely loving others and making your marriage and parenting a priority and being intentional, and you feel the weight of all of this. Don't let that weight crush you. That that is actually a good thing to feel. Because the concept of discipleship, of growing as you follow Jesus, implies that this will be a lifelong process of progress. This means that you can be honest with others. You don't have to pretend like you have it all figured out. You don't have to pretend to be flawless. Everyone else already knows that you are a sinner 
because we are sinners too. So you can be honest about where you struggle, where doubt seems to creep in, but this also means that you should be filled with hope. Why? Because as long as there's breath in your lungs, God is fulfilling the promise to complete the good work that he began in you. He didn't promise that this would be a quick and easy process, no. But he does promise that his grace will make you more like Christ than you can ever imagine. A little over a month ago, Abby planted zinnia seeds in our backyard. We have a little garden bed. And they will soon, from what I've told, they will soon be blooming flowers of various colors. But right now, they're just kind of these little sprouts that are just a couple inches out of the ground. But you know what she says whenever she walks into the backyard and she sees these little plants? She'll, she'll say to me across the lawn, look at how my zinnias are growing. These little sprouts, just about four inches tall, just green leaves, stem. Look at how my zinnias are growing. And I'm thinking, wait, these don't quite look like zinnias yet. They don't have bright orange blooms or petals, but they're called zinnias. Why? Because the identity starts in the seed, not in their fully formed state. And if you belong to Christ, you are a Christian, a son or daughter of the living God. You might be a sprout, maybe you're a bloom with a few rough petals, but you are a Christian. It is what is in the seed that promises what God will one day fully form in you. Discipleship is this spirit-empowered process that God is working in you over the long extent of your life for his glory. Then Paul, continuing in verses 9 through 10, begins to address bondservants. These were slaves in that time period. ESV uses bondservant because uh, the translators don't want us to just kind of import um, our definition of slavery into this whenever we think about what took place when many millions of Africans were kidnapped from the 1500s to 1800s. Now, there are some similarities, but that is not the same as slavery or servitude in the first century as Paul is talking about. You see, slavery was, was common in Paul's day. Millions of slaves were in the Roman Empire. In fact, about a third of the population were bondservants of some sort. Now, some of those uh, bondservants heard this gospel news, and they became a part of the Christian family that is called the church. Some of these bondservants had very difficult and laborious jobs. Some had apprenticeships that would have been sought after by other people. Some of them were even government officials. And so these bondservants were, you know, kind of all over the, you know, economic scale. And at the same time, Paul isn't going to instruct them here to live a life of trust and honor. He says they're to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And while this isn't a direct one-to-one -one from their context to ours, Paul's instructions here are applicable to employee and employer relationships. So this means that you should respect those that you work alongside. You should respect those that are in positions of leadership in your workplace. This means that you should not be someone who incites conflict by gossiping about that one coworker with other coworkers that can't seem to get their act together even though sometimes it feels like that's the easiest way to form a bond with someone else in the workplace. That means that you should show good faith. Whenever your coworker is explaining a situation in which they are hurting, do you see that as an opportunity to pray for them, to adorn the doctrine of God, that you would glorify God your Father by the way that you work in your workplace? This means that regardless of your occupation, whether you would say, I'm fulfilling my dreams and this is the career I've always wanted, or whether you kind of feel like you're watching the clock every day until it's 5 p.m. because it is the last job that you ever thought you'd have, there is significance. Because the significance of your occupation is derived from your ability to glorify God in that occupation and to make him known to those around you. And in this way, we see that discipleship adorns the doctrine of God. This is our seventh observation. Discipleship 
adorns the doctrine of God. I believe that the statement that Paul makes at the end of verse 10 actually applies to the previous 10 verses. That we show good faith in everything that we would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, that others would see the beauty of the gospel by our trust in the Lord, by our ability to repent and confess our sin when we've wronged another. And in our obedience, we display the beauty of God, our Savior. The eighth observation that will lead us in to where we're continuing for the rest of this morning is this. The discipleship deepens your understanding of the gospel and reveals your complete dependence upon Christ. Discipleship deepens your understanding of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and reveals your complete dependence upon Christ. You see, whenever we reach the end of verse 10, we rightly feel the weight of these commands. Whether you're old or young, male or female, regardless of your religious background before entering the church this morning, you recognize that there is a gap between Titus 2, 1 through 10 and your everyday life. That's true for all of us. It can almost feel like the very first day of a college course that you enroll in. The professor walks in, they hand you the syllabus, or perhaps you've seen it, you've printed it out before getting there. And as if spending hundreds of dollars on books that you don't want to read isn't bad enough, you then spend the rest of the time in class walking through the various projects that you have to complete, the due dates of those projects, assigned reading in the book that you don't want to own, and then you also have to hear about all of the research papers that have to happen in an 18-week time span. This is often diagnosed as syllabus shock, and I would imagine that many of us have experienced it. Now, Paul has just said that the Christian should behave in a way that is in alignment with sound doctrine. Now, let's get a little bit more specific in the way that he describes what that means in your daily life. If you just kind of drill into all of what we have read up to this point, he says, be self-controlled. You are responsible to be sound in your faith and genuine in your love for others. You should be consistent in your conduct. You should be kind in your words, intentional in your home, intentional in your marriage, intentional in your parenting. You should be a model of good works for everyone around you because you are an example to other people of what Jesus is like. And as if that wasn't enough, the entire world is watching you to seeing if God is really as good as you say he is because your life is an evangelistic tool to the unbelieving world around you. Now, does that cause like a spiritual syllabus shock for you? I think it does for me. And if we were to stop right there, we would say, how in the world can we do this? I think there are three responses that often occur whenever people hear the commands of God. First, the, the response is ignorance. I can't live like that. There's no way I can live like that, so just forget it. I'm a, I'm a lost cause. You see, ignorance denies the power of the gospel. It completely denies the power of the gospel we proclaim. It sees this high and holy calling of the Christian life completely unattainable. I'll never be able to live this out. Ignorance denies the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Ignorance denies the fact that Christ is able to apply to you what he has purchased for you and keep the promises that he has made for you. So we don't want to land there. Second, there is arrogance, right? We see these commands and we're like, no problem, right? I got this. Hold my communion cup. I'm about to obey every one of these, you know? It's just a box to check. It's a hill to climb. When this happens, we often overestimate our ability to be godly without God. Instead of humbly approaching him in prayer while fueling our efforts with the truths of scripture and the wisdom of Christ's community, we just kind of roll up our sleeves and we get to work. Listen, doing this would be like printing off an intricate recipe for a five course meal, but resolving to only use the ingredients that you already have in your pantry. How would that go for you? Not well. Why? Because if you're going to make something that you've never made, you're going to need something you have never had. And if Christ is going to make you something that you've never been, he will need to supply what only he can provide. So we don't stop in arrogance. We look to Christ who provides all that we need for life and godliness. So the third and best response is dependence. 
We avoid ignorance. We avoid ignorance completely. We don't just shrug our shoulders and shrink back from growing in Christ-likeness. Why? Because your God is too big to make excuses to just live in patterns of sin and disobedience. So don't do it. At the same time, we reject arrogance. We don't just grit our teeth and act like it is all up to us. We will grow exhausted. No, a, a truncated or weak view of the gospel acts like somehow when it comes to our salvation and sanctification, that Jesus was just responsible for the down payment of it. And now it is up to us to keep up the monthly payments or it will all be revoked. Grace is comprehensive in that Christ has both purchased everything required for your salvation and your sanctification to bring your godliness to completion. Your salvation cannot be repossessed by your, repossessed by your poor performance. So we're dependent because dependence recognizes the high demands of the Christian life. These are, these are high demands. These are this is a Christ-like calling. And yet these high demands are viewed in light of Christ's omnipotent power to bring them about in you. Therefore, we depend on Christ. We depend on him completely because we can't bear fruit apart from him, kind of like a vine and its branches, like a vine that requires upon the branches that require all of the nutrients that the vine supplies to bear fruit, like the vine that you would see on a trellis. The branch must bear fruit, but it can only do so because of the resources that the vine supplies. That's why I believe that Titus 2 makes this clear connection between the content of the gospel and the daily conduct of the Christian life. Uh, I think that this, this chapter of the Bible uniquely shows this relationship, kind of in close proximity, both the conduct of the Christian life and the content of the gospel as it bears on your life. Because whenever you understand the weight of spiritual, whenever you understand this, the weight of spiritual syllabus shock is lifted. You understand, okay, I've, I've repented of my sins and my shortcomings, and that grace is daily available to continue to change me. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. And Christ in you assures that the responsibility of the Christian life will be met at every moment with the capability that the Spirit supplies. So verses one through 10 are not a syllabus, just kind of this list of assignments to complete. No, it is a description of what God promises to do through Christ in you, which leads to the main point of verses 11 through 15, that the gospel teaches us how to live in the present by looking back at the grace of God in Christ's incarnation and looking forward to the glory of God in Christ's return. The gospel, this good news that Jesus came to save sinners, teaches us how to live in this present age by looking back at the grace of God in Christ's incarnation and looking forward to the glory of God in Christ's return. Look with me at verses 11 through 15. We read, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, up, self upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, whenever you think about how Paul structures the entirety of chapter two, I want you to almost get this image in your mind of a train, all right? Everybody there? This image in your mind of a train. Now in verses one through 10, it is almost like he's describing the different train cars that are on that train. Self-control, kindness, loving your spouse. These are the different train cars. Now, what do we know about train cars on a train? They have no power within themselves to move forward. They cannot make any progress on their own. No, they need a locomotive. That is the train with the engine that releases steam. It is only the locomotive that can cause 
progress. And at the same time, we find in verses 11 through 15, it's as if Paul then moves from focusing on the train cars to then focusing on the locomotive. This is the power to affect forward progress found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This distinction is made evident, evident by the word for at the beginning of verse 11. He, he says, everything that you do can adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. You can glorify God in everything by, by emulating these traits. Why? Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And because it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It is the grace of God that brings about growth in godliness. So these verses, verses 11 through 15 in Greek, a single sentence, describe the motivation for godliness, and it is found in the gospel. Now let me ask a, an honest gut-level question. Does obedience to the Lord and growing in Christ-likeness ever feel like drudgery? Does it ever just feel like a duty? Perhaps Paul writes verses 11 through 15 after verses 1 through 10 because he anticipates that you might feel like that. Author Jerry Bridges in a book called The Discipline of Grace, perhaps one of the most forming books in my thoughts on this particular subject, he writes this. It is only the joy of hearing the gospel and being reminded that our sins are forgiven in Christ that will keep the demands of discipleship from becoming drudgery. It is only gratitude and love to God that comes from knowing that he no longer counts our sins against us that provides the proper motive for responding to the claims of discipleship. So, so we're able to embrace the demands of discipleship with joy and obedience because we're reminded of what Christ has done for us. It is the grace of God in verse 11 that has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That word appeared is very important. We, we find it in the past tense here because it's looking back to the grace of God in Christ's incarnation. We're going to see the word appear again, looking forward to the day of Christ's return in his coming glory. And this informs how we live in this present age. So what do we do first? We look back at God's grace. How do we live in the present? We look back at God's grace, the appearing of Christ and his accomplished work. In verse 11, Paul writes that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Now God has always been gracious. He showed grace even in the garden of Eden to Adam and Eve when they sinned. And yet the pinnacle of God's grace was displayed through the coming of Christ, his death on our behalf and his resurrection to provide salvation for anyone who believed. This extensively displayed the grace of God. This grace brings salvation for all people, not declaring that this is now a free ticket for everyone to get into heaven. No, he's saying this within the context of just writing about older men and older women, younger women and younger men. Jew and Gentile, bondservants, and those who are free. He's saying that anyone has access to this grace of God and the salvation that it supplies. And then in verse 12, he speaks of the ongoing work of grace. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. If you, will, if you will rest on this passage for a minute, my guess is that this might enlarge the current view that you have of God's grace. I think it's very common for people to hear the word grace and think, okay, the grace of God is that he forgives my past sin and promises to forgive my present and future sin. And that's how we think of grace. But what if that view of grace is too small? I think according to verse 12, that is only a partial view of grace because what we find is that God is gracious and God's grace actively trains us. It, it is almost like this spiritual personal trainer and nutritionist that is saying, no, don't eat that. Don't put that in your body. Okay, exercise this command, do this, get up and do it. It's, it's coming alongside of us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live godly lives, not just forgiving us whenever we mess up and knowing that we'll mess up again tomorrow, but teaching us how to live a life that is pursuing holiness because the Spirit dwells in us. Grace trains. The entire Christian life, I think, can be summed up in verse 12. These two statements, to renounce 
and also to live. It's both the negative aspect of what to put off and the positive aspect of what to put on. Let's consider this first phrase. Grace teaches us what to say no to, to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions. Whenever that temptation to lust and take the second glance creeps in, it says no. Whenever you've already been scrolling through YouTube or TikTok, for an hour and it's two in the morning and you know that that will greatly inhibit your ability to be all that God wants you to be the next day at work, it is grace that says, put the phone down, God made you to rest. It is grace whenever you hear that hurtful comment about someone else and you want to just kind of one up the next person, it is grace that says, man, you know, who knows what they're going through. It is grace that teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions when they creep in. And it is grace that gives us the strength to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. I think of these two actions almost like pedaling a bicycle. We recently got Brooks a, a bike with training wheels, and so I'm well acquainted with this analogy. He, he got on there and he's thinking, if you go forward, you push down. And what happens? The pedals don't move. Right, because he has both feet pushing down. I said, buddy, if you wanna move forward, you have to kind of at the same time push one foot down and then you gotta lift the other foot up. And it's when you start to do that that forward progress actually takes place. And when Paul says, renounce ungodliness here, he's saying, hey, you gotta lift that foot up. You gotta, you gotta stop investing in these things. You gotta stop thinking about these things. You gotta lift this foot up. And at the same time, that's not enough, right? To make progress, you need to, live self-controlled lives. You gotta push that other foot down. You gotta say, God, help me to meditate on your word. Lord, help me to spend time communing with you. Lord, help me to, to serve someone else because I know without it, I'm so self-centered that much like pedaling a bike, these are simultaneous actions that we both need to be generous to others and ask that God would keep us from just wanting to spend money for our own comfort or to impress someone else. That, that by God's grace, we, we don't simply use, use our words for building someone up, but also refuse to use them for tearing someone down. That we ask that God would both grow us in contentment and also protect us from coveting or being jealous of others that are perhaps in a different life stage or experiencing different circumstances than us. See, God's grace is applied in two different directions at the exact same time. Grace simultaneously uproots the weeds in the garden of our soul and plants blooming flowers in their place. And so we look back at the grace of God. We also look forward to God's glory, the return of Christ and the restoration of all things. We find that at the end of verse 12, Paul gives a timestamp in which you are to live this godly life. He says, in this present age. I, I love scripture. I love the way that God has inspired us to think through his word and how he has written it in a way that we can say, Lord, how do I live in this present age? And he says, well, you need to look at the grace of God that appeared in Christ and the way that he saved you. And you need to look forward to his glory that will one day appear in his coming. That's how you live in the present age. And Paul describes this present age as one of waiting. You ever feel like that? Like you're just, no one likes waiting. A waiting room is literally the worst place in the world to be at all times, right? Like no one's just like, you know what? I wanna go like sit in a waiting room. That's, that place is the worst. It doesn't matter if you're waiting on a dentist appointment or at the doctor or anything. And yet Paul comforts us in the waiting because he wants you to know that God is at work as you wait. And I think we need to hear that because often our growth in godliness is slower than we expect it to be. We're like, I can't believe I did that again, said that again, got frustrated like that again. We can become discouraged as we wage the battle in our flesh against sin. We can grow tired as the effects of sin cause the unpleasant pain of suffering. And yet we wait with hope because of our blessed hope. That's what he says in verse 13. We're waiting for our blessed hope. What is our blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
One day, Christ will return and his glory will be displayed in technicolor. His glory will be displayed in ways that our finite minds cannot comprehend. It will appear as if we have never seen it before. Now, what is God's glory? I think it's helpful to, to take a word that can just sound abstract and, and try to define it. Well, God's glory is a simple way to describe God's incomprehensible attributes, who He is, in a way that humans can tangibly experience. And so what does that mean for when Christ, Christ returns? It means that His justice will make all things right. His justice will be displayed and will make all things right. His goodness will once and for all remove suffering. His infinitude, His everlasting nature will assure that you have inherited eternal life. And so what do we do with the waiting? We wait with an eternal hope. How do you maintain hope when life is hard? I've struggled with this a great deal this week in particular. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 is instructive here. It says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, not to, not to what is right in front of you, but to the, the, the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says that this truth right here, that there are things of eternal weight that you could not comprehend, that this truth is the reason you don't have to lose heart. And yet how often do we feel like we're on the verge of despair? The fog of suffering can reduce the visibility of God's glorious promises. And our future hope feels really far away when trials and suffering are near. So what do you remember in that moment? That what is momentary cannot compare to eternity. Milton, Milton Vincent, in a book called The Gospel Primer, has helped me a great deal in thinking about the hope of heaven. He says, when looking at the sheer weight of unseen glory, the unseen glories of eternity, my troubles seem fleeting by comparison. He's not minimizing difficulty or suffering there. He says, when looking at the staggering length of eternity, my troubles seem fleeting by comparison. It is only, it is only against the backdrop of a glorious eternity that my circumstances can be seen in such a manner. And so we look to the glory of Christ's return and the eternal hope that he offers in the midst of our suffering and trials. What this does is it maximizes God's promises without minimizing our pain. And that's the hope we cling to in suffering. That one day the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be fully revealed. That Jesus Christ will be seen as both God over all and Savior of all who believe. That the glory of God that Moses asked to see in Exodus 33 will be our sight. That we will no longer have to be hidden in the cleft of the rock 
to observe the fullness of who our God is because 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And one day, Christian, regardless of your suffering or trial on this world or on this earth, your faith will become sight. And only Jesus can display the full glory of God because he is both man and God, and that title belongs to him alone. See your Savior. Behold his shepherding goodness and tender care for you, and wait with great hope at his future coming. Paul then builds upon this glorious truth by focusing on what Christ has accomplished in verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God gave himself. Christ gave himself for you to redeem you. This carries with it the idea that you were bought out of a life of captivity and saved to serve him. How precious you must be to God the Father that he would send his own son to die for you, to absorb the penalty of your sin and to give you life. How then does that cause you to live? How then does that change your perspective on everything in your life that you have been redeemed from all lawlessness? And not only that, you've been purified for himself, a people for his own possession. There, that language from Exodus 19. You, you are a people for his own possession. He has purified you. Once again, when you hear the, the phrase, Jesus came to save you from your sins, I think it's often that we turn to the penalty of our sin in interpreting that phrase. Jesus came to save me from my sins. Well, eternal hell, uh, maybe even some of the consequences of them. No, but... But what we see in this passage is that Jesus' work is also a means of purifying you, to make you something altogether different, that you are not just saved from the penalty of your sin, but you're saved from the power of the dominion of sin that it once had over you, that Jesus can say whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And now there is this gradual process of the daily presence of sin being removed in your life. Why? Because Jesus gave himself to purify for himself you, a people, for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And purified people perform good works. It's often in my parenting that I'll remind my boys, hey, Kirkland boys, use kind words. Kirkland boys are respectful to other adults. Kirkland boys share what they have for the good of others. Kirkland boys do this. Not once have I said, Hey, if you want to be a Kirkland boy, you need to share your stuff. You need to be respectful. I've never given them an ultimatum. I always remind them of who they are because who you are shapes what you do. And if purified people perform good works. And here Paul is saying, you've been purified as a person for his own possession to be zealous for good works. And let's be honest, how often are we truly zealous for good works? Good works, yeah, sure, maybe we'll perform them, but how often does our laziness get the best of us? Does our apathy get the best of us? And we would would perhaps not find ourselves being zealous for these good works. Three motivators just by way of application. It's better to give than to receive. Christ says that. And so this is a part of God's good plan for you. Second, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of my Father. So, So he's saying that there's this spiritual nourishment for my soul that builds me up, that satisfies my heart, that can be found in nowhere else than in doing the very will of God. And those that are hungry are satisfied in Christ. So be zealous for the good works that God has called you to. These good works can be the campus ministry that you are called to lead or your position here at the Oaks. 
It can be the ordinary aspects of everyday Christian life. It can be adding the fruit of the Spirit in the context of your everyday relationships with roommates and your spouse and your kids. These good works are sacrificial acts of service. They can be seemingly mundane or just scratching the surface of miraculous, but we are to be zealous for them. Once again, Milton Vincent is helpful here saying, whenever I see the cross, I see the premium that God places on the works that he has prepared for me. How valuable all these works must be if Christ would die so that I might now perform them. And how precious are those for whom these works are done if Christ would die that they might be served. Doesn't that reorient the works that God has called you to? That Christ would die to redeem you to be able to perform those works and that Christ loves those that you are called to serve so much that he has placed you in their life as a redeemed person to perform them. Paul's final instruction to Titus is to declare these things. Exhort, that is to teach and rebuke, to correct with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so Christian, in closing, I'll say this. This is an invitation to look back at the cross, to look back at the cross, Christ's work in his incarnation, his death and his resurrection, and to know that if you have trusted in Christ's past work, then you have been made right with God and you are in relationship with him. So what does it look like for you to look back this week? Perhaps for you it's saying, I need to be baptized to declare to the world that I have received this grace. For you, maybe it's declaring this grace to someone else, much in the way that Aubrey shared this message with Chris that we saw in the video. Maybe for you, it's reflecting on God's grace as you take communion and how you need it ever still. Maybe it will be reflected in your time with the Lord this week in scripture and in prayer to be reminded of this grace daily that you would look back, but also to look forward that one day your suffering and your struggle with sin will be over. Your faith will be sight. As John wrote, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know, what do we know, John? That when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You will one day be fully glorified in the presence of Christ. So in this present age, make it your aim to preach this gospel of grace to yourself every single day. Christ gave himself for you to redeem you from sin, to purify you as a people for his own possession. And so we live in this present age looking back to God's grace in the gospel and looking forward to the glory that will be displayed in his return. Let's pray.